And from then on, no classroom was gonna cage my resentment I could cast my aspersions or shoulder burdens withhold judgment I saw messiahs, pariahs, greed slayers and scabs But I couldn't come home till I'd learned how to grab so I grasp that the promised land It's too often promised by men who would seek And then steal, then hold office And that nothing was ever gonna get very far Till we smothered the old guard And put no one in charge Welcome back to the Poor Pearls Almanac. This is Andy, and you're probably wondering what happened to our intro music. This is a special episode for me, not only because I got to catch up with someone who I'd crossed paths with when I was much younger, we got to talk about how their music influenced my politics. So today's episode is with Ben Patrikas. He's the voice behind Christians and Lions, whose song you just heard in the intro, and we'll hear more of after I'm done talking. Ben's had a wild and wide career in music, from fronting the receiving end of Sirens, the Lido Venice, Sharp Teeth, Get Loose, and many more. We chat about the role music has as a tool for revolutionary thought, and what it means to make music that is meant to inspire change, as opposed to simply virtue signaling and commodifying radical politics. Further, we dive into how two decades of performing to diverse crowds has helped inform Ben's other work around tenant unionizing. While labor unionizing is well-known and gets a lot of attention in left circles, tenant organizing gets significantly less despite the fact that in some ways its impacts are felt more long-term as tenants live by definition in community versus unions which can span regions or even entire countries. Ben provides a lot of resources for folks interested in learning more about tenant organizing and those links are included in the show notes. And of course, if you're enjoying the music for the episode, Go check out Christians and Lions on Bandcamp and Instagram. Now, here's a clip from a song I was listening to in college, and then we'll be jumping into our discussion. Father, your boy's being gunned down on a plane. He's out reading marks on the left wing again. And they can't get him to come in. They've tried, but his singing's a bathtub gin. He'll jump when his wings are fully grown. Or he'll learn to build some on the way down. Won't hit the ground for miles, yes But it'll be incomplete and now He smiles Weekly, but it's better than yearly He scratches his head And raises his eyes To his son's Paul Ben Ben, thanks so much for coming on As a local, I'll, I'll say Bostonian Even though that's not truly accurate. Mm -hmm. You're a few years older than me. You were in the local music scene before I got into it. You're a huge influence on me. So I'm very excited to have you here to chat today. You've had a wild career in music and you were one of the folks that got me to really think about the way politics was intertwined. I believe actually in some sketchy zine that I found that you were quoted in, you talked about the commodification of music. And that stuck with me because back then I like went on Ask Jeeves to like find what the hell commodification meant. 
And uh, <laughs> so, so, um, so yeah, you, you've had a big influence on me. I'm, I'm super happy to have you on. But uh, Ben, please introduce yourself. I'm Ben Patrikas. I'm a musician. Yeah, I'm a musician. And uh, also, uh, I work in tech. I live in Rhode Island now, but I've been a bo- I was a Bostonian for quite a while and uh, played in a lot of local bands. Yeah, I'm a listener. I mean, a fairly recent listener to the show, but I like all the stuff that I've heard. I'm really happy to be here. And uh, thank you for saying such sweet stuff. It's always nice to hear that <laughs> anything that I said in a song or outside of a song got people to think about something because that's how I roll too. We're all we're all super just going through life influencing and being influenced. So Yeah. I, so before this interview, I was talking to my partner and I was like, you know, I remember going to the early receiving and the siren shows when you were fronting them and you would like between songs have people like bring up poetry and read it. And I was like, man, I wish I had the balls to do that uh, because it was like so like intimate and personal and sweet and like in many ways, the antithesis of what you think of as a show. But in reality, like, it's like that joke about like punk kids are like nice kids that try to look scary, you know? Right. That's what it really felt like, you know, like having people just like come up and be like, hey, I wrote this poem. I, I want to share it with everyone. Everyone like gets super hyped up about it. It was just like this really cool, intimate moment. But I think that speaks a lot to the way you engage with music and the scene and the humanity of it in a way that was, I think, really different even back then. And having seen your career evolve that that continued in a, a bunch of different ways. So I, I do want to talk a little bit about that, you know, how getting into music as somebody on the left, I don't know exactly where you stood back then, but how did you think about engaging with your politics and your music in a way that you thought was like not beating someone over the top, but having that like that intimateness about like, hey, it's it's not me telling you how to feel about something, but like conveying an emotion. Yeah. I think uh, I think the scope of that question is is really wide, which I appreciate because I'll probably um, ramble into different ramble my way into different corners of the question. Um, but <laughs> I'm surprised that the poetry thing worked out as well as it did, honestly, because I think there like that was like rife for like people making a joke out of it or heckling each other or just generally being weird. But t- people took it really seriously and like not overly seriously, but people took it seriously. People came with stuff after they saw us do that a couple of times and, and wanted to read stuff. And, you know, I left it open to like reading poetry that you hadn't written as well. So if somebody had read something that moved them, you know, they could they could get up and read. And so it was it was really fun. And it was I think I think part of it, honestly, part of it was like pretension, right? Like I, I was just kind of like, I want this to be more of like an artistic experience than like the average, you know, VFW show or whatever. And I was like, maybe we can, maybe if we like, uh, like add this dose of like both intimacy and kind of, you know, a, a level of seriousness between songs. A, it takes pressure off of me. I don't have to say much between songs. And <laughs> I was always like trying to figure out where, I stood. I think everybody sort of who like has a microphone in front of them for an extended period of time has to figure out like what type of microphone haver they're going to be. <laughs> like, are, are you going to, you know, proselytize, uh, you know, politics or your worldview? Are you going to try to make jokes? That's always pretty dicey. Um, you know, are you going to just be very effusive about how happy you are to be there and like talk about like what a 
a good situation you're in or like people are in that can feel very genuine. It can be very genuine or it can be a genuine feeling that comes off as being very trite. So it's like, it was just like, it felt kind of dangerous in a way. And so this was a way to like, kind of put that on, on somebody else and to also like take the focus off of like the band or uh, on me for a little while. And so I think it worked out pretty well. And I think people have some, I've talked to other people who have like good memories of that. And I don't even remember why, I think I just discontinued it when I stopped playing with that band, I think is basically what happened. And it also, it, it was also an opening, a musical opening for them because I'm not somebody who's ever been somebody who can do kind of like improv music. Like I think once there was a show where there was like a puppet show that like opened for us and they wanted us to like provide a soundtrack. And I was like, can we just basically stay on a C chord? Cause I know like two inversions of that chord that I can kind of like <laughs> pick around. <laughs> and my bandmates were like very kind and we're like, yeah, sure. We can just do a play a C the whole time. But yeah, I've never been like an improv person, but they were having a lot of fun with pedals and kind of getting atmospheric and stuff like that while people were reading. And so that was pretty fun. I'm sure there was like a lot of cringe moments for me and readers and people at that show, like looking back. But at the time it felt, it felt really good. <laughs> we were teenagers that were happy to feel significant by doing things that seemed that we that we deemed significant, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I think there's there's a lot of value in that, especially the time we grew up in. Thinking about it in terms of like there's no social media or like ways to record anything. For one, a very big one, but also just I think being the not to get too like I don't even know what the word would be, but like being the post nine eleven kids, like it was just like a very strange time to be a teenager, but. To tie that back in, though, this idea of like the politics within your music, if you were to like listen to a lot of the music that you were writing, at least back then, and I think even moving forward, a lot of times it didn't seem very political on the surface, but a lot of it, when you start to look at the actual lyrics instead of just kind of like coming along or whatever, becomes much more political. And I'm curious about like your, your thought process of getting into that mindset there's a lot of bands out there, you know, I'll just pick on like Anti-Flag because everyone's shitting on them right now. So why not? Are they? Yeah. Yeah. We, we can talk about that after if you want. No, yeah, I do. Um, I but... want to be caught up on the Anti-Flag uh, drama. Okay. So you know what they stand for. There's no surprise. Even if you didn't know the band name, you could listen to the any name of a song and know like, okay, I know where these guys stand. And there there's some power in that. Like, I'm not going to deny that. But also, there's a lot of other ways that you can write powerful music, political music, class music that is not so over the head. And I'm curious about your kind of thought process of, again, the one time that I read an article about you, you're talking about the commodification of music, like this very like political understanding, this material understanding of the way music is utilized and used as a tool by, you know, so many powers. But how you decided to engage with writing music that was political and significant and kind of what that process was for you, what you were thinking, if you thought it was an effective process. Yeah, I think I can give myself and Anti-Flag shit in equal measure because they were definitely like uh, a band that, that my like circle of like kids I was hanging out with, you know, when they came out with like Die for Your Government and stuff like that that like people were listening to. And I didn't immediately, I mean, I heard that and was like, fuck yeah, anti-war, like I'm into it. But I also like looking back, I think the reason why I didn't feel like I wanted to say similar things, even though I agreed with them is rooted in like an understanding that I wouldn't have until later, like probably the last few years where it's like, 
you know, you know where they stand, but do you really know where they stand? I mean, they're sort of just vaguely anti-capitalist and anti-war and like Mohawks on the front. There's probably an anarchy symbol like somewhere in the booklet or whatever. So it's like there's this general like gesture at anarchism, but anarchism of like the um, if the A goes outside of the circle, it's a very different kind of anarchism than if the A is all inside of the circle is what I've learned basically (laughs) over the years. Like there are people who like, you know, are reading Kropotkin and like they're they're there's sort of an adjective that's attached to their anarchism, their anarcho-communists or you know, they consider themselves syndicalists or, or what have you. And then there's sort of like kind of a vague kind of nihilistic or insurrectionary anarchism that I think like sometimes has good intentions um, as far as like building community and not being completely individualistic or like libertarian to a degree where they start, it it starts to kind of blur the lines between right-leaning libertarian and the classical left libertarianism of like, like the early European use of the word. But like, I don't like, I couldn't really tell you what the politics of like Justin Sane are like off the bat. And maybe that's because I haven't read his interviews, but the fact that I've heard enough of the songs that are political in nature and don't have a coherent understanding of his politics, I think like kind of speaks to what I'm trying to say, which is that like, you can hit people over the head with it and still not really be expressing a coherent politics or, or at least a politics that somebody can understand as coherent uh, from just the listening to a song. And for what it's worth, I think it would be incredibly hard to do that in a way that is um, still sort of aesthetically pleasing. Like, I don't think anybody's going to sit there and like write a position position paper and then set it to music or like a polemic. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> um, you know, but like, but in general, like, I think, what am I, how am I trying to say it? I guess like whether you, whether you're very heavy handed and whether you use, I guess, political buzzwords or keywords maybe is the better way to put it or not, you can't express all of the ideas about your worldview or even maybe your position on a certain issue in a song very well, especially if it's like a, you know, two and a half, three and a half minute, like punk or indie song. So I saw that and was like, I don't think I can do that. And at the time I thought I couldn't do that because I don't know enough about these politics. And now looking back, I'm like, I couldn't do that because I didn't really know, I think what they were fully expressing. And I didn't feel prepared to express that because I didn't feel like I had my my um, ideological shit together. So yeah, that wasn't that didn't seem like a real option. And also, like at the time that I started in music, you know, I was like, it was in high school, and I didn't really develop any kind of radical political outlook until I think the end of high school because it was basically like the the invasion of Iraq post nine eleven was when it was the first time the sort of general canard that like, you know, politicians are liars or whatever was like proven true in a way that like, I like watched coverage of like reasons for invading Iraq and then we're like, oh, and there were no WMDs or whatever. And that was just a very simple first thing to make me question the kind of entire system of like, okay, I grew up with democratic parents, Democrats are the good guys, Republicans are the bad guys, we're team, team blue let's let's do this thing. If we vote hard enough, we can change the world, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I kind of still, I didn't get rid of the trappings of that sort of outlook for years and years and years. Like I expressed an anarchist politic soon after that, but it was kind of a default in the sense that like anti-communism is so deeply ingrained in the kind of general American 
psyche or the American zeitgeist or whatever, like the indoctrination that I got was essentially like when I found out I was, I would express my views. Somebody would be like, that sounds like socialism. And I would be like, then socialism must be pretty cool. And they'd be like, no, (laughs) USSR was socialism. And that was really bad. And I'd be like, okay, I guess I'm not a socialist. And then I found out about anarchism, which seemed like socialism without the bad parts. That was like my very simple understanding as like a 17 year old. So I was like, okay, I guess I'm an anarchist because I want everybody to have everything, but I don't want anybody that's in a scary looking uniform to be telling people that they have to share everything. That was my understanding of it. And like, of course, like now, like I have read a lot more and listened to a lot more and I have a very different outlook, but for years and years and years, it was just kind of like, I'm an anarchist in terms of ideals But what I do as an anarchist, I have no idea other than like mutual aid. And then I wasn't somebody who was anti-electoralism to a fault. Like, well, I shouldn't say to a fault. That's up for debate. But I would spend my five minutes in the voting booth because it didn't seem to me like it was a problem to do that or that it rendered my other ideas about anarchism moot. So that was termed in like an essay that I recently, I I read within the last few years, but it's like 10 years old at this point as like anarcho-liberalism. I can't remember who like, who was using the term. It might've even been like Bhaskar Sankara who like used to run Jacobin who like, you know, my politics do not align with his either now anyway. But at the time I was like, oh my God, that's like where I was for a really, really long time. was like anarchist and ideals, but otherwise I'm basically a Democrat. (laughs) Like, yeah, I, I go and vote, and then like I wish that we were all just like it was all mutual aid and folk punk and potlucks. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I I, I could see that being a, an easy trapping when you're young and transitioning and trying to not offend anyone. Transitioning in your politics, it can be really easy to just be like, I'm going to go the the safest path for my politics to feel valid without like having to defend things that I don't understand or don't have a full grasp of. And we live in a country where when is the last time it wasn't the most important election of our lives, you know? Exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh we've been saying that since 2000, at least since 2000, and um I I don't think that's going to go anytime soon. So it's really easy to get like riled up into that machine and I it's by design. Now, as you've continued your musical career, you've continued to engage with politics and um, as your politics has evolved, and you've made a ton of different music, different styles and so on, from Christians and Lions, which you're still kind of active with now, I believe, and Get Loose, which is, you know, total 180 from that, and a number of other bands. I'm curious about kind of how, because I know some of that music is much more political, but I, I don't even know if political is the right term. Framed in class, I think is probably the right terminology. Uh, and I'm curious about what your thoughts were. If you, you know, again, thinking back to how political, how you've tied your politics into your music, if you think that's a more effective solution, and if that reflects some of your politics specifically, uh, you know, kind of, you know, some of your thoughts on that. Clarifying question Are you asking like if different styles of music lent themselves better to getting a certain message out or? We're just like we're rooted more in a tradition of of uh, you know carrying political messages or uh, no not necessarily if you if you want to if that is something that did have an effect like I'm happy to hear about it I was thinking more about like as your politics has evolved you've become more comfortable and confident 
and you've made a lot of music and you've seen how people have reacted to it, how maybe you've reframed how you deliver certain thoughts and ideas in your music. And if you found some to be more effective than other methods to making music engaging politically without it being a, in, you know, going back to the anti-flag example, like, is anti-flag going to reach out to new people? No, like the people that listen to them already support this concept of anti-flag, right? Gotcha. And, and like, there's nothing wrong with being the the voice of that, that position. But, uh, you know, is it actually making the tent any bigger, so to speak? Gotcha. I would disagree. So, so yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a really good question. So like soon after I did, uh, I was in, you know, the receiving end of sirens for a little while, which is where I would say like, if anybody talks to me and they're like, oh, like I know one of your old bands, like that's usually the band that like, they're like, oh yeah, I went to some of those shows or, and they kind of watch them have like kind of more of a um, successful, like kind of music career, like after that or whatever, because we were on a pretty good trajectory when I left. And so soon after that, I like tried some like post-punky stuff and that had like folk influences in it kind of by way of stuff like the Violent Femmes or Billy Bragg, these sort of like anti-folk folks from the folks from the 80s and 90s. And through that, I started to get into like stuff like Woody Guthrie or whatever, where it's like he's he's actually he's singing about politicians, he's singing about workers, he's singing about workers' movements, he's singing songs about anti-fascism much more kind of like explicitly political. And then from there, I was like, well, folk punk seems cool. It seems kind of like the anti-folk stuff from the 80s and 90s. You know, Michelle Shock, even like kind of like Annie DeFranco doing a record with uh, Utah Phillips or whatever and talking about the IWW. Like that was probably the first time I heard about the Wobblies and stuff like that. So all of that led me to kind of having this, what I thought was a revelation at the time that I was like, oh, actually like acoustic guitars and like, like, like old school folk and blues music was like way more quote unquote punk than any of this punk stuff that I'm into. And I didn't like fully abandon, like listening to any of that, but I was like, this is maybe a way that I can say some of the stuff that I'm starting to want to say in a medium that like makes more sense for it. But as like my band at the time, like Sharp Teeth, which was me and my brother, who were basically Christian's Alliance, and then our friends, Nick and uh, Joe, who played as Et when they weren't playing with us, we sort of had like two two pieces that formed a four piece folk punky band. And like we went on tour together and, you know, carried around all our mandolins and stuff like that in a, uh, in a trash can with like a little anarchy heart on it. It was very, very fun. It was a very fun time in life. <laughs> and we had a really good time. It sounds like every folk punk kid's dream, basically. Hell yeah. We were playing like with Planet <laughs> X bands and we just thought like we had like fucking peaked. And like, uh, you know, if anybody doesn't know, like the the kind of Planet X label, which sort of like, I, I guess kind of ended in disgrace because like the uh, lead dirt dude turned out to be a, a creep. But like at the time, the big thing was that, you know, they would only charge $5. They'd got like the cheapest packaging they could. Like everything was like, burned like reproduced by hand stolen and like they give it away as as cheap as they could and that seemed really revolutionary to me you know i think their slogan was like if it ain't cheap it ain't punk or whatever um and that was like a big influence so like you know we'd be listening to like defiance ohio and like one reason in these bands and, like getting to play with some of them and it like felt like there was this kind of like movement happening for lack of a better word but we'd often like when people would like when people would describe us on a bill like christian's lines or sharp teeth it would be like kind of like sweet melodic folk from Boston or something. And it was because like, even though we were singing about some of the same themes, we, A, like we weren't, like 
when I, I can't to this day, I've never put the word revolution in a song and I don't think I ever will. And I think it's just because I've heard it used too many times in songs where I'm just like, it just feels like too much, like too ham fisted. And so we weren't doing that. And then also like, you know, we were like singing and like harmonizing and stuff like that. And I think like the kind of the style du jour for that, like that particular scene was in kind of like affecting this kind of gruff kind of voice, you know, especially if the singer had a lower voice, it was like kind of like pushing it out and doing kind of like a hardcore punky thing. And that was the punk part. And then the folk part, but in my head, I was like, the punk part is like the attitude, which, you know, we, we, we could talk about that whole day. I'm sure. And then like uh, the music is like the folk part. And all of this, I'm trying not to be too long winded, but like all of this basically kind of goes back to like a fundamental change in my thinking that happened over like a decade, which is basically that like everything that I'm thinking of is like very political, very revolutionary, a break with what came before something outside of like the, you know, the culture industry, like big business, like getting its tentacles into our art or whatever always existed like under that the sway and the influence of those systems like there was just no way to get outside of it or to be completely like uninfluenced by it maybe people like ian mckay or steve albini could like say in interviews like when i was reading them in like the late 90s or something like that that like they didn't own a tv they didn't know it was on mtv or vh1 now you can't fucking pump gas without a tv coming on and a bunch of like pop culture shit coming at you you know what i mean so it's like it's it's pretty impossible to avoid and i don't even really try to avoid it i don't really have a problem with knowing you know that like i hope kesha wins the lawsuit like i'm glad like barbie's doing well at the box office and some people are talking about how like <laughs> you know, bell hooks ideas about like men being affected positively by feminism as well. Like, I think like uh, those are all like things that I'm not opposed to knowing about. Um, and I like to discuss them with other people. And, you know, it's a good like water cooler discussion, you know, which is really useful for organizing. But there was this sort of subculturalism that I like indulged in and thought of as like, well, we can create this enclave of something that's truly pure. And to me now, I think that's as absurd as, uh, oh man, uh, I shouldn't say that probably, but I don't know. I, you probably don't have any like <laughs> of the young, like Twitter generation Stalinist listeners anyway, but like, I think it's as absurd as like socialism in one country as like an idea, you know what I mean? This idea that you can create this cultural enclave or looking back at like, like we know, like Marx was writing in like critique of the Gotha program about like, you know, the, the communards, the Paris commune or whatever, and talking about how like, it was a serious problem. Like it's seriously something to contend with that. Like if you are able to create, you know, a space wherein a more communal and egalitarian system can function and you like actually like kind of make a revolutionary break, it has to spread pretty quickly or it's going to be besieged by the forces of capital. And on a much smaller scale and a much less important scale, I was thinking that like you could have this cultural enclave or this scene that was like outside of the zeitgeist. It was outside of like the the ideological influence of what I saw as like the evil capitalist industry. So I don't, I haven't changed my mind about the music industry being kind of a terrible place and like a lot of its practices being suspect. I just don't think like at this point, I can't bring myself to be too concerned with like getting off of Spotify or trying to make South by Southwest pay like more for uh, featured artists. Like there's so much that I think um, is accepted when you start, when you start to focus on certain elements of an industry, 
you're still accepting the industry as existing and like its legitimacy in a way that it's like, I guess it doesn't bother me as much, but it used to be like a main focus. And so I think people should do whatever they want if they feel compelled to get off of Spotify. I mean, there's, there's companies that I avoid too, and we all make our decisions and I'm not one of those people that sort of advocates there's no, you know, there's no, um, ethical consumption under capitalism as a, as a way to kind of like encourage it's like libertine, like it doesn't matter, fuck it, like do whatever you want. Like you shouldn't try to do ethical things anyway, cause it doesn't matter. But I like legitimately think there's probably better ways that I could spend my time than like focusing on like how the music I make is heard or distributed at this point. Does that make sense? No, it does. Um, I thought you were going to say, no, it doesn't. And I was like, that's that, awesome. <laughs> you know, no, it made no sense. I have no idea what you're talking about. My boat's idling in the driveway right now. I don't know. It's something about ethical consumption. Don't worry about it. Your yacht. Hey, this is Andy from the Poor Pearls Almanac letting you know about our Burr Oak Acorn Competition. We're looking for the biggest, most tannin-free acorns you got, with a small prize attached to both the biggest, the most tannin-free, and the best combined, with naming rights as we propagate those selections to boot. For more information, visit poorprols.com and click on the Burr Oak Competition bar. I, I think this is really important because this is something that I think is become is manifesting in a new way, right? Today we have Patreon, which we have a Patreon. And then all these other like variants of that, right? Where we try to bypass the system. You know, we don't do advertising. You know, many podcasts don't do advertising where listener funded, blah, blah, blah. And you know, it's not a it's not a really good answer. And I don't like doing it because it it changes the relationship with the consumer in a way that I don't think is necessarily better, even though it's like, an alt- there's fewer bad people getting a cut of your dollar, so to speak, but you're still doing the same thing fundamentally. And it's not really a solution. Like it's, it's listener funded, but like all you're doing is extracting money from people who in many cases don't have it or have very little of it, but they want to support you. I mean, I, I'm sure you've experienced this selling shirts or vinyl or CDs. And you're like, you need this more than you need that money more than I do. Don't worry about it. If you really want to support us, great. But also like, I would rather you have that money than I do. Mm. Because I think like the people that are into whether it's folk punk or weird podcasts or whatever, it's not necessarily going to be people with a lot of money. But in my experience, those are the people that want to support the things they care about the most. And like, that's a beautiful thing. But also, it's not <laughs> that I don't want to take money from them. I want to take money from rich people. <laughs> right. This isn't solving the problem, right? Right. I've really struggled with this same question of like, how do we, how do we build something that seems like it's outside of the system, but we really can't. And to try to do so, I don't think is necessarily a bad thing as long as you understand like the limits of what you're trying to do. That you're not trying to say you're not setting yourself up for a failure by trying to meet some ideological purity that by function cannot exist under the yep. system we live in. Yeah, absolutely. To me, that's been like one of the bigger challenges of as this show has grown and gotten more popular is how do we how do we navigate that kind of space? And I think, you know, as music has continued to to grow in this same way, in the same trajectory of how do you consume it, how do you best support the artist so that a handful of people aren't making most of the money. I mean, you've been around a long time. Do you have any thoughts about that? Like, is there anything worth trying to do? Or is it just kind of like, hey, do what makes you feel good? 
It depends on what your end game is. And I think it's really important that you say that, you know, you can't, you can't dupe yourself into thinking that you're doing something you're not with the actions that you're taking. You have to see them for what they are. So for example, so that the folky band that I was talking about, the like folk punk band, Sharp Teeth, with my buddies, Joe and Nick and my brother, I brought this idea to them. They were really into it. We decided to do sliding scale. So we did what we could, like we shoplifted CDRs and we like wrote on them in Sharpie or like we got, I think we took a, um, we borrowed this one we borrowed because it was a public education facility and we gave it back. (laughs) It was like a stamp that said like this music belongs to or whatever. And like, we wrote like everyone on it, you know what I mean? For like a fun little thing. Like we basically all of our design elements were like free or borrowed or like whatever. We packaged them up ourselves. And then we were like, okay, it cost us like we had ended up having to buy the sleeves and like a few Sharpies or whatever. So we like did the math and we were like, cool, like we can get away with selling these for like a dollar or $2 or whatever it was. But you can pay anywhere from, I think we said like $1 to $5. Cause we saw like a lot of demos and stuff being put out for like $5. And then we like wrote some stuff about the sliding scale on it. And like, people were just more confused than anything. They were like, so how much does it cost? And it like didn't really do what we wanted it to do. And like in particular, any shows where people had to pay to get in, they have enough money to pay the $5 at the door or whatever it was back then to like see us. So they probably have the money to buy a CDR or they're not going to the merch table if they know they don't have additional money or whatever it is. So kind of similar to your point, your point about like bringing other people into like, uh, or, you know, expanding the tent or whatever with like anti-flag in a way it was almost like performative. Right. I mean, at the time it didn't feel that way. We were like, we're really giving people an opportunity to be like, oh, I just like don't have, you know, I, I had to choose between like whatever, like my ride home or whatever on the T or getting your CD. And now I get to have the CD too. You know what I mean? That was the way it looked to us, but like, it just wasn't happening that, that way. So from then on, I decided, okay, setting a price is good. And I can just say something on stage or I can say something in a post or whatever. Like no one will be turned away for lack of funds. Or like, if you want the new music, let me know. So I used to say like, you know, I'll send you MP3s of stuff if you can't afford. And like, nobody really took me up on it. I mean, I know that like the file sharing was still a thing, you know, even after like kind of official Napster and then like LimeWire and stuff like that, people were using like you send it links or like, you know, mega upload or like whatever. So maybe that was going on and that's how people were getting it. And it felt weird to reach out to somebody and be like, can I have your music for free? You know, you get a certain amount of free downloads on Bandcamp. So we did that for a while. Like we've tried all these different things, but like, I ultimately don't really think that the selling of music is... It, it just doesn't seem to be as big of an issue for like the people that would need like a sliding scale on certain things. And so like, ultimately it's kind of like, I hate to all put it all down to like personal responsibility, but I do think that it's like, I mean it in an empowering way that like, if people really can't afford to like support a Patreon or support your CD, they will either understand your politics and ask you for to be able to listen to this because they're like, it's something that gives them joy and like they need to use their money elsewhere. Or they've made a decision that like, that's what they're going to prioritize. They want to support you and maybe they won't like renew their Netflix subscription or they'll use somebody else's password. Although apparently you can't do that anymore. You know, so it's like people, people find ways around it. And if they really need to ask, they'll probably know that they can ask. Although I think it's a good idea to let people know that, you know, they won't be turned away from a show or what have you. I think it's like less of what people are thinking about in this way. And as far as like the sort of like the ethical selling of like merchandise, I think my feelings on that like evolved a lot too. 
when in the early 2000s, like, you know, I found out that like Fugazi had only ever like, you know, charged five dollars for their shows and they like basically did not increase it despite the cost of living going up in other in other areas or whatnot. And they refused to sell T-shirts. Right. And it's like it's kind of like, OK, well, why is a T-shirt different than a CD? And it was like, well, you know, it looks like it's like branding. Right. And people are wearing your brand around and advertising your band. It's like that's not why, why I wear band shirts, like, or why I used to wear band shirts more. It's like, you know, I'd be like, I'm a fan of this band. And like, I want somebody to talk to me about the shirt if they recognize the shirt so that we can have a conversation about like songs we like, or like whatever it is, you know what I mean? I want to show people I'm a fan. I identify with this band and what they're saying and blah, 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 blah. I don't think, I didn't think of it as like trying to sell CDs for them or whatever. And I think a lot of that stuff is like, the, it's like these misguided attempts at like trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist. Like I was really big on like, people would ask me to sign a CD. And like, you know, I'd seen like the dude Ben from kind of like spitting had been like, you know, listen to Skip Spence when he'd like sign a CD or like listen to this thing that influenced him. And I was like, that's really good. It's like being like, I'm not a rock star. I'm not signing your fucking CD. That's bullshit. You should know it's bullshit. Here, listen to this band instead. And it's like, instead, I just came off as like this dickhead that like wouldn't sign CDs for kids. You know what I mean? And it's like. I had to learn all that shit like the hard way by like finding out from other people like, you know, this comes off like kind of like shitty. Right. And I'm like, but I'm trying to do the good thing. I'm trying to. And it's like <laughs> you constantly have to like critique yourself <laughs> and have others critique you to like understand whether what you're doing is actually meeting the goals that you set for yourself. And if my goal now is like a complete rupture with the capitalist system to be replaced by, uh, you know, um, the, the, the real movement to establish, uh, a moneyless, classless, stateless society known as communism. Almost nothing that I do in my music dealings is going to contribute to that in any way outside of maybe spreading ideas yeah, or maybe making people feel good, hyping people up, hopefully before they're like, I, I listen to some political yeah. music that like gets me really, really psyched to like go and talk to people or march on a landlord or whatever, you know, and that's positive. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really easy to get like in your insular bubble and forget that the way you're engaging with your politics, your art, whatever it might be, can seem totally foreign because you get like really nested into this world that is just totally disconnected from passerbyers, you know, people that might engage with it, find it interesting, but maybe are not as experienced and vetted in that world where suddenly, you know, you have this really complex and meaningful reason why you do the things you do, but it might not really come across because, again, you're, you're lacking that, that communal aspect that I think sometimes is really important in driving a lot of things that are on the left in general, that we have these very aspirational frameworks for how we want to engage and think about the things we're doing, the way we sell our music, whatever it might be. But if we're talking in a way that is inaccessible or thinking five steps ahead of someone else, then it doesn't really matter. That same model would work in plenty of other places, just not in that space. And that doesn't mean the model is necessarily wrong, but it's not a fit for that that space. And uh, that's okay. That's just the way the world is. So I do want to transition to one thing you just brought up, which is tenants and uh, rents. And uh, you're involved with some tenant union work. Now, this is something I don't think many people are as knowledgeable about, mm -hmm. because I, I it's it's something I see every once in a while on social media, but it's not it doesn't get nearly as much attention as like many other things. So could you talk a little bit about what a tenant union is and kind of what it means to do work in that space? Yeah, for sure. I don't even think it's that big of a departure, because I think 
what you said about sort of, I think we can extrapolate the idea of talking to people about things without using like uh, a bunch of academic language or trying to talk to them about like a future, the future world that you envision when they have um, like a struggle that is primary to, is taking up a lot of their time and uh, energy at the time. So I think tenant struggles have, I'm not taking center stage. I shouldn't say that, but I think they've they've been a lot more on people's minds, and they've been talked about a lot more in lefty circles recently. And I think that's just a function of the rising cost of rent, particularly in in a city like Providence. There's like ongoing discussions over things like short term rentals, Airbnb, the cost of living, and the cost of rents going up. The lack of available housing or affordable housing, at least available affordable housing um, in Boston. Like you know, when the seaport was being built up, I remember I, I used to work in the financial district there, writing financial press releases which was incredibly boring work. And across the street that, you know, there were these like condos or whatever, and they were being sold for like one to $3 million each. And like, from what I understood outside investors, sometimes outside of the U S were like basically just like purchasing them in advance before they were even done building as a way to park that money in real estate, because they knew that, you know, it would hold its value at least for a few years. And it was basically just a way to like have it in kind of a bank that wasn't a bank and, potentially have uh, it appreciate in value. So speculation on housing and you know the various housing bubbles we've seen over the past couple of decades and subprime mortgages in 2008, all of this stuff has contributed, I think, to people thinking more and more about housing, the precariousness of housing and how it is you know, something that's a necessity. Shelter is a necessity for people, right? And so I think that's why it's coming to the fore in a big way in certain like activist and organizing spaces. And I think the first thing to do I think for for anybody that's familiar with sort of lefty politics in general or like Marxian economics in particular, or maybe not Marxian economics so much as, as Marxist politics, the idea of the kind of worker as the as like having their hand on the lever lever for change is really big, right? Because if you go on strike, right? We've been hearing all about uh, you know, UPS, like maybe, maybe not accepting a contract, and there was like practice picketing happening and SAG AFTRA. Did I say that right? SAG AFTA? Is there an R in there? <laughs> I think it's AFRA. Uh wait. SAG AFTRA. Hold on. I'm gonna look it up. Yeah. So uh everything happening with SAG AFTRA. I was right the first time. There's um, you were. I'm I'm just an idiot. It's fine. <laughs> well, um, yeah, the film the film industry, actors and writers, etc. So like we've been seeing a lot of stuff about unionizing and striking in the news. And if we dial down into that and try to understand why that's so important from the point of view of class struggle or revolutionary politics, it's that, you know, workers like literally make the world go around. And you might think, well, I don't know that. Fran Drescher is contributing the same thing as like somebody who's picking up trash or whatever. It's not the same thing. But the important thing is that like people sell their labor to a capitalist who owns, you know, a company um, who owns the means of production and their labor is essentially uh, they're they're underpaid for it. And the uh, profits are, you know, the slogan is the profits are the, the unpaid wages of the working class. So workers hold a really powerful position when it comes to revolutionary politics, because if they withhold their labor, they're not only like, you know, causing the the boss or the company to like lose money, uh, but they're also, they're, they're not creating 
they're withholding at like two different points. It's basically, it's different than like a boycott where it's like, if you're a boycott, you're not giving the company money directly. They're withholding labor, which uh, prevents uh, the creation of products that are then sold for money. So there's kind of like an added layer and withholding labor is basically like the last, the largest kind of escalation that you can do. So rent strikes can mirror labor strikes in that way, but it's not quite the same, right? Because the landlord doesn't really like scab on people the same way, but he can kick you out and uh, get a new, a new tenant for the apartment. I've encountered some kind of like orthodox Marxists who kind of dismiss dismiss tenant organizing as an important terrain of struggle for revolutionary politics is basically what I'm trying to get at. And I think that it is important to remember that workers are like kind of the the primary uh, folks who through withholding labor can cause certain certain choke points uh, in the capitalist system to be examined, not just by people like in a union, but by people throughout in this case, you know, the country, you know, if we, if, if UPS did strike, right, there would be a significant problem with, with shipping routes and whatnot. If you could get all of the major shipping folks to strike, or, you know, as, as happened in, in years past, like the longshoremen unions um, out on the West coast to strike, you would seriously, seriously uh, disrupt the economy in a way that would like be very, very palpable to everybody, not just people who cared about unions. Like you would be forced to care about what's happening with unions because you know you wouldn't be able to get certain products. And we saw a little bit of this during COVID, not because as a result of strikes, but just as a result of like the the capitalist world system like having to contend with a pandemic. Probably the uh, easiest way to put the difference between labor and tenant organizing is that withholding labor potentially removes two sources of profit. Um, there's a surplus value generated over the course of the workday and potentially the product or service provided to customers who may not be able to purchase those things. A rent strike or also like a boycott withholds direct income. So, you know, it withholds rent or withholds uh, the purchase price that would be paid by customers for a product that they're choosing not to buy or a service they're choosing not to buy. The former working like labor strikes is also generally considered a primary focus of socialist organizers because finding new renters or customers is easier than replacing trained workers, um, if that makes sense. So yeah, I'll be the first to admit that basically tenant struggles are not on the same level, I guess, as worker struggles. But it's a site of, you know, what Engels and Marx would term like social reproduction, right? It's like where workers go after they work in order to reproduce themselves to show up the next day you know, in the week, next week and whatnot. And so it's it's quite important and you spend a lot of your time there and you're forced to pay for it or most people are forced to pay for it regularly. And you could get into the difference between, you know, homeowners paying quote unquote rent to a bank in the f- terms of a mortgage, but like we're really focused on renters because they're in the most precarious position. But essentially what we're looking at is we're looking at a housing crisis and we're looking at people that were used to sort of feeling individually responsible for uh, not being able to pay certain rents, um, start to realize that a lot of people around them, a lot of their neighbors are also not able to pay rent and that there might be a bigger problem here. And that despite, uh, you know, the capitalists like best efforts, they can't convince them that it's just a personal problem with them, that they can't pay, you know, 60% of their income in order to have a roof over their head. If we leverage the fact that people are realizing that everybody's in a really dire position, you know, we may be able to link people up, particularly people who have the same property manager or landlord, in order to put pressure on that property manager or landlord to 
fix things that they haven't been fixing, make the locations that people are living in worth it, or to you know potentially forgive rent or avoid uh, a rent hike or push off a rent hike for a while. You know, stuff like rent strikes are like the ultimate escalation again, but there's plenty of other things that can be done before, just like in uh, worker organizing, uh, labor organizing. So, you know, we might have somebody that's dealing with repairs being needed to be done and like they're not getting like code isn't coming out and they may be able to make demands of the landlord and then just do a march on a landlord with other renters to deliver a letter um, and say, listen, like, you know, we're going to keep calling code. We're going to like, you know, get the press involved, et cetera, et cetera. And that might be enough for that person to be like, okay, okay, okay. You know, I've hired this maintenance company and they're going to come in and do all these repairs within uh, a week or within a month or whatever the demand is. So what we've seen is that similar to people organizing on the job, you know, sometimes it's, it's relatively small maybe, but widely felt and deeply felt issues where they can they can create a demand to recognize and and fix those issues, put that demand on, in this case, the landlord in the workplace on the boss, and not even have to necessarily have like a union or a tenant's union in the case of you know the landlord tenant uh, relationship, but still organize and and engage in direct action in a way that also shows people what class power looks like, that they're building class power through linking together with other tenants and getting somebody to listen to them because there are more of us than there are of them, uh, meaning more of the proletariat than the bourgeoisie, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's a couple of things that are worth unpacking about this. So you brought up this idea of like investors buying property. For folks that are not familiar with the term 1031 exchange, go check that out. It's going to make you really mad. Ben's smiling. So do you want to, are you familiar with it? No, actually, um, is that is that specific to uh, our region of the country? Or is that a federal? Uh, it's federal tax code. Gotcha. Um, so the idea, a 1031 exchange is if I sell a property, I have a certain amount of time, usually a couple months, to identify a property of equal or more value. I can roll my profits from the property I sold into the new one and not pay taxes on it. Oh, shit. So that's why a lot of people continue to buy more and more property because it has to be more than the one they sold. Uh, so that way they don't have any capital to pay uh, ta taxes on. So that in itself perpetuates the need for basically a monopolization to defer taxes. So that's fun. The other things I do want to talk about are more specific to what the work you're doing. The first is that I think the idea of organizing tenants is in some ways much more powerful than organizing workers because it forces people to communicate across economic backgrounds. If you're, you know, if you're talking about, you know, UPS drivers organizing, just for example, they all do the same thing and they all make about the same money. When you start dealing with tenants in a building, they can be across a spectrum of income, but because of different reasons, they might be only able to afford the same thing. So it does offer a little bit of a different perspective on how those relations can form, especially in, in the context of like building a community, uh, a meaningful community with people that have similar lived experiences that are very intimately connected in a way that even if you're a part of the union that's national, you don't know people You'll never know most of the people in that union. Hmm. In a, an apartment building, that's totally different. The third thing that I think is really important about it is it allows a lot of people that otherwise might not work, might not work uh, above the table, uh, maybe physically cannot work, to be able to engage with their own sense of politics and belonging and community in a way that they can't otherwise with a, a labor union. 
And I think all those things are really powerful and important, despite the fact that it might not be as effective in terms of challenging the power of the, the upper classes. It's much more valuable on the end of building meaningful community and building a meaningful movement that is based in like slow, slow, like deep change, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. When you're doing this type of work, to get back to what we've been kind of talking about is like, how do you engage with these kind of these kind of subjects um, with folks that may not be politically active? Could you talk a little bit about like what that process looks like for somebody that's like, oh, this sounds really cool. I want to know more about it. For sure. Yeah. Uh, One thing I wanted to address in what you just said was that I think that's definitely true about labor unions being something that, especially with union density being so low, a lot of people like aren't in unions in the US and have never been in a union. um, Or if they are in a union, you know, they're surrounded by people on a day-to-day basis that aren't in a union, let alone that union. One thing I think is important to keep in mind is that with stuff like the UPS strike, one of the things that has come out of the the contract that's being offered, and forgive me, I haven't been keeping myself up to date on whether or not they did actually accept it or not. Um, I should probably look that up. Was that uh, part timers were not getting nearly uh, enough of what they had apparently been looking for? That's that's the word from that I'm getting from my friends who keep tabs on labor issues. So while it was touted as sort of like you know this historic um, contract that they had won, and they did win like several concessions. There were things that weren't kind of explored in detail, like, for example, uh, from what I understand, um, they were able to get AC in the trucks, which was a big deal, but it's only going to be on trucks that are, are, are commissioned like from now on. So all the trucks that are currently in use as part of the UPS fleet are not going to be retrofitted with AC. So it's like we see parts of these wins and obviously like the union like wants to talk about those successes which is great but i think like we can't obscure the fact that it's like there are different people's doing slightly different jobs or making slightly different rates within that fight and you know the people that are largely represented in the union are full timers and so they're getting like more of their concessions as i understand it than the part timers and so we see that uneven terrain which i think actually speaks no. even more to what you're saying about the difference between labor organizing and tenant organizing so for tenant organizing um if people like wanted to get involved with that. I think the best way to do it is to look and see if there's already some sort of tenant um, tenant union near you or a tenant organizing, well, a tenant organization, I guess, near you. One resource uh, could be to look, and I think, so there's a national network of tenant unions called ATUN, the Autonomous Tenant Union Network. And those folks have listings on their website, which is atun-rsia.org. So that's Autonomous Tenant Union Network or La Red de Sindicatos de, I'm not going to be able to pronounce that, Inquilinos Autonomos. So the atun-rsia.org website has some resources, including like they put out a newsletter called Tenant Voice. And I think last I checked, they had a list of their affiliates. Yeah. So they have a few of them on there. Um, There's a bunch on the West Coast. The folks that I work with in Power, which is Providence Organization of Workers and Renters, we're not listed on there. We we know these folks and are in contact with them a lot, but we haven't officially gone through the affiliation process. And we also were formally known by a different name. 
And so like we were listed as an affiliate then and haven't changed everything over. But there's also Greater Boston Tenants Union if you're in this part of the country, sort of the Northeast. There's a Worcester Tenants Union, et cetera. So you can look for something that's already established, but you don't even have to have the discussion about sort of credentialing like you do with um, labor unions because there isn't a national governing body like the NLRB, uh, the National Labor uh, Review Board, um, for uh, tenant unions. So the discussion that people get into over unionizing on the job through organizing and not going through an NLRB election and stuff like that, whether or not it makes sense to do that or to try to join um, as an affiliate of an existing union, like all those discussions are sort of out the window because there's no kind of officialdom in the realm of, of tenants' rights. So you can just talk to your neighbors. And if you're all having the same problems with your landlord, you can draft a demand letter and deliver it or, you know, draft an email and send it and kind of start organizing. You know, there are resources online for looking into that, but I'm, I'm also happy if people reach out. You know, I've got a friends that I've got a few friends involved and comrades that have been doing this longer than I have that that usually have answers. <laughs> so even if I don't, they might be able to hook you up. But the general the general gist is that you know we talk to people who are struggling. We go out, we flyer, we see if we can find folks who are having issues right now, see what their issues are, see if there are things that we can organize around, and if we can pick up other people along the way because there is definitely strength in numbers. Um, you know, three out of five units in a building are telling the landlord that you know they're going to take action or they're going to you know involve code or whatever it is that the escalation point is if you know certain things are not addressed if their demands aren't met that's going to carry more weight than if, if one single tenant says hey you know fix this or I'm out of here they might just say okay great you know what I mean because I can fill your spot particularly with housing being so challenging to find you know if they know that they're uh, maybe slightly below market rate, and the reason is because it's a you know a slum situation. Um, they'll take advantage of that and try to find uh, you know somebody who can. That's what all they can afford, and so maybe they'll put up with it even if you don't. But if you organize together with other tenants, it makes your case stronger. It often uh, forces them to do the right thing, even when they they normally wouldn't. Like anything, there's power in numbers. We shouldn't just leave that as something that's just for labor which I think we we tend to do. And like you said, we're, there's so little union membership in this country that it's really hard to try to even do that. And the way work is structured today, especially online, like as great as it is to be able to work from home, it does lose that capacity to like communicate and have, you know, find these narratives and these threads that are so important to building that kind of grassroots movement, like internally to unionize, if that's something you're interested in doing at work. I mean, trying to organize over Zoom seems sketchy at best. So I get it. Definitely don't do it on your work computer. Yeah, don't do that. Ben, this has been really interesting. Christians Alliance can be doing any uh, benefit shows for any tenants unions coming soon or no? That's a good question. I don't know. I try to, that's one spot where like music and, and politics, I I try not to force the issue because like you meet a lot of different folks and they might not be that interested in like indie folk, <laughs> but not yet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we'll certainly, we, we do love playing benefits. We've done benefits for uh, a farm, a farm that was actually uh, part of a community land trust, which is a whole other kind of discussion about community land trusts, social housing, what we see in a, in a, a post-capitalist future. 
uh, for housing, you know, as a human right and how we could get there. But, but yeah, we'll be playing. I think we actually have a show finally on the books this is the first one for me being a dad. So it's going to be, I'll, I'll probably be a little bit rusty, but that'll be at the end of, um, of November um, at the sill in Austin. And then um, other than that, you know, we don't have too much going on. We're working on an album slowly, but surely, but again, we're, we're jobbers. We're day jobbers. We'll get it out when we get it out. It's all social music yeah, now. <laughs> yeah. No, your music's been uh, a part of my life now for decades. So I'm looking forward to some new stuff. People, where can they find your music? Um, I think we still have ChristiansAlliance.com, honestly. It just redirects to Bandcamp. You know, if somebody wants to design us a website, let me know. But uh, but yeah, it just redirects to Bandcamp. It's ChristiansAlliance.com. Um, I think all our stuff there is still you know, kind of pay what you can as long as there are still free downloads left and, you know, anything you throw at us, will just be put back into recording what we're recording. We're trying to build up kind of our own studio at Matt's, the guitarist. Well, he's not the guitarist anymore, but the, uh, the sometimes bassist, sometimes keyboard player, sometimes, uh, weird it's stuff. It's a folk player. band. Everyone does everything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And hopefully that'll be out. I don't know. I'm going to guess six months from now, at least. Awesome. Ben, this has been a, a load of fun. I'm so happy to have had you on. Yeah, thank you for uh, for having me. Hope I did all right. <laughs> Getting tall, I'll stay vertical, drowning like all.